One other major thing that I would like to happen is ratifying of the Nagoya Protocol. While it's been accepted by Australia, it hasn't been ratified by the, the previous government. I think with a bit of a push with this current government, I think we have a, a good you know, prospect of having that ratified and making protection of Indigenous knowledge even more protected. Now, one of the big dreams that I had was to bring a, an international conference to Australia, so it's International Society of Ethnobiology. They've never had a conference in Australia. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My chat with Jerry was in August this year and since then there's been some really big announcements. So listen through and hear a little bit about them at the very end. Yama, Jerry, it's so good to catch up with you. How are you? Good, good, thanks. I think when we last had a chat, it was in Darwin in 2019 at the Palema conference and you were about to head off to South America or Europe or both and to present at various international conferences about the work you do. Was was that a good trip? Yeah, I think that was the one to Brazil. Yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get you to the NRM conference and it was just as all the bushfires were charging away and oh my goodness. Yeah. Um hectic, hectic times. I am speaking with Jerry Turpin, a mm, Barbarum man, who is nationally and internationally recognised for his work with traditional owners to assist them to record, preserve and, and transmit their knowledge and cultural practices about plants. In 2013, Jerry was awarded the inaugural Science Award at the National Indigenous Deadly Awards. And I remember seeing you there, Jerry, <laughs> in the Opera House. So it was such a big night. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> for his outstanding achievements in science and to cultural advancement. Jerry has published many papers and he is the Senior Ethnobotanist at the Tropical Indigenous Ethnobotany Centre or TIEC in Cairns. TIEC is a partnership between traditional owners, the Queensland Government, including the Queensland Herbarium, CSIRO, James Cook University's Cairns Institute and the Australian Tropical Herbarium. The centre was established in 2010 in response to aspirations by Indigenous community members to preserve local Aboriginal plant knowledge and is a partnership, incredible partnership that uh, Jerry uh, not only works for but really has led. <laughs> um, Jerry, there's a really powerful quote you often use, uh, as in your keynote address to the Palema Indigenous Languages and Technology Conference in 2019, that speaks to the sense of urgency and vision of what you do. And I might just quote it. In Africa, when an old man dies, it's a library burning. Knowledge of plants, animals, and caring for country embedded in language and culture. This year kicks off the UN Decade of Indigenous Languages, and that calls that calls upon the world to take urgent steps at national and international levels to revive and strengthen Indigenous languages, recognizing that the complex knowledges and cultures they foster are strategic resources for good governance, peace building, and sustainable development. No pressure. <laughs> but 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 timely stuff yeah so Jerry sorry it was a bit of a long-winded intro but I just wanted to set the scene about who you are and the amazing work you do <laughs> can you tell me how you personally feel we're going protecting languages and learning from elders in your part of the world some reflections yeah well um 
they're going out on country, they're actually speaking with the masters of their own country. So, you know, if I, if I go out as a, well, I can say I'm a student for these elders, and um, when they talk about their country, um, I'm learning a lot. It doesn't matter which part of the country or which elders that I'm, or knowledge holders that I'm talking to, I'm always learning something new and something different. So, um, yeah, so that's a great experience for me um, to learn from the knowledge holders themselves and and also, you know, for them to want me to record that knowledge for them. Um, yeah, it's a, pretty much a big responsibility and to be able to keep it for them or safeguard it for future generations. And involve young people in the process as you do, yeah. Beautiful. In 2016, SBS did, a, there's been so many stories about you and with you, Jerry, but it, there was a lovely one on SBS that did a great story about you and your work. And that story leads with how you were, you were quite used to people stumbling over your job title. And I thought as a nice way to lead into the, the nuances of what you do, uh, that was a good place to start. So let's start there and unpack that a bit and perhaps then talk about your work, the themes of the centre and your current projects and uh, visions for the future. Jerry, can you describe why you think people stumble over your job title? And I'm thinking of the story, the parts of the puzzle or breaking it down that you talk about so beautifully in a TEDx talk about being an ethnobotanist and being an Indigenous biocultural knowledge person. Funny enough, I'm still explaining what ethnobotany means. <laughs> and it's, um, it's just that it's not a well-known field. Um, Indigenous knowledge itself is is not particularly known about or respected, but a lot has changed. So, um, mm. you know, with my term with the Ecological Society of Australia, that six years as director of Indigenous engagement. So we talk a lot there to young scientists about Indigenous knowledge and the need for them to engage with uh, Indigenous people on the country. Indigenous people are there all the time on country, so they're the eyes of that particular piece of country. So, you know, it makes sense for researchers to go and engage with them and talk with them. We talk about the research that the ecologists and traditional owners do, and and the name that they call it is two-way research or two-way knowledge. So it's just the two knowledges working together side by side. Yeah, providing solutions, if you like, for um, land management um, problems and, and other research. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's gaining ground um, Indigenous knowledge or Indigenous science, as some like to put it. So, so, Jerry, your job title is sometimes referred to as a senior, as an ethnobotanist or as an Indigenous ethnobotanist. And I know you often speak about your work as Indigenous biocultural knowledge which sort of just relabels it and brings in a whole lot more about culture and language and and lived experience and worldviews on country. So I suppose I'm, I'm, I suppose that the term ethnobotanist, it's quite a Western term historically, isn't it? So, or, or, do, or do you see it that way? Are you reinventing that term? Um, no, it's, it's pretty much a, a Western term. And, and with Indigenous knowledge also, you know, it's... Um, Western language seems to struggle in describing Indigenous knowledge. So, you know, um, 
Yeah, the term that we come up with was, um, you know, some like to call it Indigenous science. We like to use the term Indigenous biocultural knowledge uh, because culture and the environment is integrated. So there's no separation of culture and, and the environment. Yeah, and, and language yeah. speaks to and of country. So it's very important to the whole Indigenous scientific approach, isn't it? Yeah, so the language, country and culture, you know, they're intertwined and uh, uh, cannot be separated mm. so i mean if it has been in the past mm. but um yeah if you separate one of those things then something is missing but with um you know um, things like native title and um in other situations aboriginal people getting back land is slowly starting to bring those three things together again um, just by being on country and relearning language and culture and customs. So preserving language and sharing knowledge about it is actually key to helping preserve, see, speak up plants and animals, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And also, um, you know, your country holds a secret. You know, it opens up knowledge to to um, uh, the mob going back on country. And also language, there's hidden knowledge in there. That opens up the secrets of country and culture. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. I know you've said elsewhere that you the, the way you work is about providing a bridge between the two worlds of traditional Indigenous knowledge and Western science. So I think that's um, it's very very powerful and very beautiful, uh, making voice and giving power um, to both. So what you do at the Tropical Indigenous Ethnobotany Centre is all about. IBK or Indigenous Ethnobotany and, and about developing and enacting really progressive, culturally progressive research that puts traditional cultural owners and communities and their interests heart and centre. Can you tell me about or paint a picture of, of what you all do at the TIEC and, and maybe just unpack or tell us about the four themes of work that you do? Because that they really build on each other, don't they? Is that a good way of talking about the work that you do? Is that how you'd like to talk about it? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I remember in sequence, but... <laughs> oh, there's that great presentation you sent through to me, which I, you know, I've got here. <laughs> the four themes. I think I think you lead off with talking about research. You perhaps talk about some of <laughs> how, what sort of research you do, like mapping. Yeah. So um, part of the research I do is, um, well, one of the major research projects we have at the moment is the Aboriginal Medicinal Plants Project. And um, the, the main topic of that, or the main theme of that project, is looking for novel drugs to that may benefit uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So, according to some research, says that Aboriginal people are less likely to suffer from IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, and the reason may be is that. Um, in a lot of the medicinal plants and even the food plants, that there's a lot of antioxidants and things like that. And antioxidants play an important part in the treatment of IBD. So, so we're just looking at some of the, the Aboriginal medicinal plants that um, the people use, and particularly the, the ones that for wound healing and things like that. So, so research like mapping. I remember when I heard you speak in, at Palima, you just told this amazing story about working with elders in Cape York where you'd go in and do sort of Western science uh, plant mapping literally by the square metre at a fine grain level to identify every plant, every seed, every fungi, biota, you know, very, very uh, Western sort of 
uh, micro detailing. And then in parallel, you do the mapping of the landscape and the naming of the plants and the animals and the stories and the, the the cultural significance of different plants and animals with the elders on country. And then you'd bring those two knowledges together to have a very comprehensive story and document about the plant wealth on that of those owners. And, and then there's the whole protocols about how they're that knowledge is shared. So that, that was really interesting mapping. And you also spoke about with um, Darren from Miramar, you did a, a Google mapping workshop, which was about, um, you know, just using free free Google mapping software to help uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people literally mark the spots on them, on maps of their country of where they see special animals or, or plants or um, significant cultural sites and so forth to help with telling the story about about culture, but also to make native title claims and things like that. that. That sort of mapping is pretty powerful as well. Do you still do that sort of work? Yeah, so that's um, so we use that in different ways. Uh, that's part of the knowledge exchange, so giving back to community. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. been one of the uh, things that Aboriginal people didn't like was that when people came into community and did research, nothing returned. So that's all part of that knowledge exchange. So we do map you know, the plants, medicinal plants, bushtucker plants, and other special plants as well. From a, a Western side of mapping, uh, we provide um, vegetation maps, regional ecosystem maps, because a, a lot, they've got a, a lot of land that they they have and they need to manage as well against weeds and feral and things like that. Mm. Mm. Regional ecosystem ma- um, maps and you know, even um, rare and threatened plants or other rare and threatened species, um, we provide that information and that helps them to, you know, if they want to put in funding to help manage the country. So it kind of helps them in that way as well. Weeds, you know, how much weed is there and how much work they need to do to get rid of weeds and things like that. And those sorts of tools, like even with a mobile phone or just a laptop or whatever walking around on country people can map it in situ in real time which is really powerful isn't it yeah so using a gps mm, that's that's the term i was looking for <laughs> yeah. yeah and then downloading that onto the, the map um, another type of mapping we did was land use mapping in Mackay with the kwanjimo and Ubira people so normally council when they do land use mapping it's about western input Western view of what land mapping is. But in this particular one we did for the mob was mapping all the special places that they had, even if it was just camping by the river and fishing places they go, you know, um, with family or places they go camping, things like that, plus sacred sites, special sites and um, cultural sites. So, and songlines, like particular places to songlines? Yeah, yeah. So whatever knowledge they have that they want to put down on, on the map, then we will do that for them and, and again, you know, provide the points and then legends for all those maps. Yeah, Aboriginal people seem to, they can see things better with a map rather than just talking about it. And just words on a page. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, that's beautiful. But thanks for thanks for that, Jerry. The other, another key theme is training and education, and I think you've already alluded to that a bit about the cultural, uh, the community exchange empowerment uh, skills and abilities. But the training and education, I suppose, covers all sorts of stuff. But you, um, 
I think I think in you know that you've done you've run national indigenous fire workshops is that right things like that and and the Cape York yeah. uh, vegetation site data collection training and does that pretty much capture the sort of um, training and education you do or are there other ones you might like to talk about? Yeah, well, um, in the first instance, when we go down country, the projects are usually family or clan group based, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a whole group out there of elders right down to young people. And while I use the modern technology to record the knowledge, mm. and we still have the elders as well speaking and transferring knowledge down to the, the younger people. So, you know, that old ancient way of teaching still happening. Um, with the um, National Fire Workshop, I just hold workshops on native plants you know, bush tucker and bush medicine plants of that area, and also um, how to identify mm-hmm. uh, the common trees and other vegetation. Because, um, you know, if you're burning, so you've got to know what you're burning. So mm. um, we provide that information and how to identify certain trees, how to identify communities, vegetation communities, um, even the use of um, how to, or the the instruments used to collect data from vegetation sites, so how to record that knowledge in a Western way as well. So it's a mixture of cult- cultural and um, Western science methods. Yeah, and it's, I think, you know, what you do is it's so much about um, recording, preserving, transmitting, but it's also about reanimating and rediscovering a lot of knowledge, isn't it? And for many people, yeah. myself included, I would love to come on one of those walks and talks because I feel like I I, I know trees as my friends, particular trees as my friends, but I don't know who they are, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so everyone, I suppose, learning that, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's about the, the people that come to those things too. They, they're sharing knowledge as well. And, yeah. You know, some, yeah. Some say, oh, we use this plant for... Um, this ailment and another person will say, oh, if, yeah, we don't use it for that, we use it for this, we use it this way, so, yeah, yeah it's, um, it's good. The National Indigenous Fire Workshop, was that with people like Victor Stephenson and... Um, yeah, Victor Stephenson and Peter Stanley and... Uh, and Mr Costello. Other, other group as well in there, yeah. Is it Fire Sticks Alliance, were they? Yeah, Fire Sticks Alliance. Hmm. And a third theme is, oh, well, I just found this fascinating when you spoke about it, Kalima, sorry, I keep talking about that's the last time I saw you. <laughs> the third theme is uh, research and archival materials. And this was really interesting to me because I've got a bit of a museum's background. And the way you spoke about how you go about rediscovering language, knowledge, names mm. was really museological. Sorry, it's a wanky word. But so you talk about journals, media, dance. Tell me about what research archival materials means to you and which ones you often go to, you know, where where language might be a little bit forgotten or not readily, or, you know, there's only a few elders left or or in situations where people are having to rediscover mm. um, sometimes lost words and knowledge. I mean, it's poignant, powerful, important stuff. And so the way you were using the archival materials and the way you spoke about it was amazing. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so one of the first textbooks I went with a, botanical textbook and it just happens to you know have the um, list of plants in Queensland but it also had the the names of the plants um, from certain groups and the names of the tribal groups as well not for everything but most it did so I thought oh well that's a uh, you know um, it's to be worth 
getting all that information out and putting it into a database. And so that's kind of led me on to um, looking at other historical um, journals, so things like the Society of no, I just forget the name of the journals. Yeah, but these various historical societies that came from yeah. a very particular place and recorded yeah. things in a very particular way. So you're yeah. kind of using them and then, de you know, taking it apart and sort of putting it through a different lens, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, you spoke about um, using old ethnographic films and school magazines with cartoons that were not always unracist <laughs> but had, <laughs> but still had, quite important knowledge embedded in them if it was sort of looked at, uh, you know, with a progressive lens. So, but particularly the way you spoke about looking at some of those 1930s and, you know, even earlier uh, ethnographic films of, of of dance and ceremony and song uh, and, and yeah. you know, literally excavating words and language and knowledge from, from those as part of your sort of uh, two-way science research. It was really, is, is really exciting, yeah. Yeah, and some of them made those old films, you know, they were um, explorers and, mm. um, and people like that. And they just, you know, they also had a love for the bush as well and um, they liked Aboriginal culture, so they recorded some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. And even the old newspapers, people would write in and, and just talk about certain plants with the, that the Aboriginal used and the names of them and... Mm. So, yeah, a lot of knowledge was gleaned out of those old publications. And you spoke about putting them into a database. What sort of databases do you use? Do you use the Miramar technologies? And Yeah, I use both. So um, I use uh, both the Miramar database and um, Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the Miramar database, you can add photos and uh, voice little video clips yeah, so it gives a um, benefit to that and and most people in communities can access those sorts of tools as well quite easily yeah 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 okay so uh, and a fourth theme and i think this is really core to you know so much of the amazing work you've done here and internationally to advance indigenous biocultural knowledge is all around intellectual property protocols and agreements now that's that's huge yeah <laughs> how would you like to describe or talk to us about that because it's been such a huge moving space and it's really important. Yeah. So the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, they provide guidelines. Mm. For that, you know, it's a declaration, convention. So it's non-binding, but it provides certain guidelines for Indigenous people. So so that's what we sort of use and it, that kind of led on to the Nagoya Protocol too about access and benefit sharing. So those are the international guidelines that we use. But intellectual property um, in Queensland, people were very um, suspicious because of what happened in the past. So the, the Northern Territory has published a lot of books with the knowledge over there with the ethnobotanist and the Aboriginal people. But in Queensland it was different because of that past that former researchers had. So um, there's always suspicious about people coming in, uh, particularly about intellectual property. Also, with the interest in pharmaceutical medicine and pharmaceutical companies interested in Aboriginal knowledge about medicine. So we, we worked on the, the Biodiscovery Act, Queensland Biodiscovery Act in 2004. While it mentioned traditional owners, it didn't quite 
protect the knowledge. So there was a review and an upgrade of the um, Biodiscovery Act. And I think in 2018, those um, recommendations of change were accepted and legislated. Yeah, it just provides um, better protection of Indigenous knowledge now. So, so in amongst all that intellectual property, there's also the important part is, you know, the engagement, relationship building, the protocols when you go on country, knowing about the different protocols, um, you know, with over 350 nations and clan groups, family lines, differences, even vast differences. So just working with one group doesn't qualify you to work with everybody. It's just um, a learning process with every group. So, yeah, it's very important that you approach each group individually and start that relationship building first up. So that those people are involved up front in shaping and making decisions about anything that happens around research into their plants and access to knowledge of those plants. Yeah, so that's where the free prior and informed consent yeah. um, happens. So the two people come together and everything is laid down on the table. And that's something that's called the cultural interface where experts from the two different knowledges come together, lay everything out on the table and, you know, there's discussions. Aboriginal people need the, to be able to use their own government system. So, you know, and that takes time as well. And shape and talk about and shape how they want the benefits yes. understood and shared. And it's not just patents and IP. It's, mm. it's a whole other bigger bigger sort of locus of what benefits are. It's not just not being pigeonholed into Western patent uh, sensibility. No. And, you know, benefits could include, could be monetary, but, but also um, training and education and employment and mm-hmm. Um, sometimes even, you know, some traditional owners just want a fence built around their waterhole, you know, sacred waterhole. So, um, but once I lay everything out on the table, the, the project doesn't move forward until um, both sides are happy with it and before any, any agreement is signed. And as you say, free prior and informed consent, that comes out of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And then there are the conventions on um, all the work around biodiscovery and biopiracy. And as you've said, the Nagoya Protocol and upgrades to the Queensland legislation. You've actually That's actually an Australian, it's it's the best legislation in Australia around this stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, we think so. And it, <laughs> and, well, that's good. <laughs> And I'm not sure that any other state has done anything. There may be similar, but uh, but this it should be done all state, you know, Australia wide in every state. Jerry, since you and the TIEC kicked off back in 2010, it, the, the space has changed a lot, and everyone's very excited about bush foods, and you know, there's debate and more informed discussion about who and how benefits should be generated and who should have access to them. And we, uh-huh. we won't talk about the bush food industry too much today because there's a whole, whole lot of players and there's a lot of good stuff happening in that space and greater recognition that mm-hmm. in first people should have more of the economic benefit of it all as well. Perhaps if you could just tell us a little bit about biopiracy because that's sort of what it's protecting against, isn't it? The, the mm-hmm. Greater recognition, awareness of and enacting of 
True Tracks, Right Way Principles for Indi- Respectful Indigenous Engagement, Terry Janke, her chapter on bush foods and medicines that you feature in right up front in for, for good reason. Yeah. Th- th- things are progressing in that space, aren't they? Do you feel that the people you work with feel more empowered to have res- conversations with non-Indigenous business developers and researchers and so forth? Is it, it's, it's a changing vibe, isn't it? Yeah, so we... We're actually the first ones to test the Biodiscovery Act and um, we found that, um, well, it looks good on paper, you know, there's still issues within that. So, for example, to even just understand agreements and um, the agreement jargon, Aboriginal people need legal advice and that's part of the free, prior and informed consent, um, which has to happen. But the problem is they don't have the finance to be able to afford legal advisors. So that's where, um, you know, our project took quite a while um, to even start because of um, just not having access to that advice. So, you know, there are those kind of things that happen. But uh, the good thing about that is, you know, it's proving that it works, that, you know, we couldn't go ahead until the Aboriginal community was happy. Now, quite a while later, then all the agreements are signed now and they're happy. So now we can go ahead with that project. And which project is that, Jerry, in particular? That was the one I was talking about earlier, the um, irritable or inflammatory bowel disease. And right, yeah. Yep. Also, I'm doing a master's on umbarbarum medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the, that's just my master's as part of that bigger project. And so I was waiting on yeah. those agreements as well to be all signed. Do you work closely with the, with you know, Terry Janke is an Indigenous lawyer and an absolute leader and, you know, absolute leader in, in so many spheres to do with um, respectful engagement and business uh, interaction with First Peoples. Um, and her book, True Tracks, came out two years ago, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And the, there are the 10 True Tracks principles that ring very true with the sort of method that you, the methods that you use. Is that is that a fair comment? Like, would you refer people to... Uh, that book is a good starting spot if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, Terry's got a good handle on, as as you would imagine. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but for people who are, who who are approaching Indigenous biocultural knowledge, hmm. some of it is very specific to plants, but yes. principles and processes, free, prior, and informed and respectful, apply pretty much to every sector. Thanks, Jerry. Looking back over the past 10 to 12 years or so, since you, you know, really got underway with the TIAC, what do you, what, do, I mean, there's so many great projects and, you know, long processes, I'm sure, but but what to you are some of the really big highlights or achievements that you've most enjoyed or been excited about? And you've got, you know, you do partnerships with CSIRO and other organisations. Are there particular projects or or language outcomes that you've seen that you'd like to talk about? Pretty difficult to, to highlight one or two. I wonder if we should talk about this. Um, I was going to ask you to tell me about some of the methods, the nuts and bolts of how you go about recording and preserving plant knowledge, and you've already touched on that a bit. But maybe you'd like to talk about, share some of the stories and some of the fun you've had along the way um, about spending time with traditional owners and elders on country. I think uh, you mentioned in your talk at Palima that you got one of the benefits, one of the perks of your job was that you got to find the best fishing spots on country. How do you go about it? What do you do? Do you take a team of you or is it just you or do you do lots of visits or do you go and spend quite a lot of time at one time with elders? How, how do you go about it? Yeah, so it depends on the, the community where they 
have have the, the funding to do one or more projects. Um, it's quite a few times I've been called back to the same community, and I usually have someone with me. I usually, you know, get a volunteer or somebody else from the herbarium to come out with me. But now I have a um, a more permanent person, a young Aboriginal girl who wants to be an ethnobotanist as well, and so she's keen to study later on. So she'll be coming out with me on future trips, which is good to have another female. because you know, you have the men's business, the women's business, and so um, that's very beneficial in that way. But when we go out, it's basically, it's camping on country. And then uh, you just wait until the elders show you um, and ask you to tag along and and that's when they'll talk about their country and their knowledge and you just have to be on the ball, so, you know. <laughs> you know, I, I, those CSIRO seasonal cat like it's not four seasons, it's six seasons or seven seasons or the winds or the... To, to capture the full, but to try to record and, or see and hear the full spectrum of plant species, do you, do you sort of almost have to go my, a few on a few visits to capture each of the different seasons, yeah. Yeah, because, um, you know, usually the, the field trips are about a week long, most of them, and then you, you just go to certain places that they've picked out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a whole lot of other places where there's different vegetation with different plants and different plant uses. So, yeah, you, you basically need to spend, you know, a few months up there with the elders on country and um, to be able to do a, a very good job of recording the knowledge. And in terms of, um, you know, right way biodiscovery and co- you know, uh, benefits and proper consultation and all that sort of stuff, or is there a story you'd like to share of a particular plant or product? I think in one of your presentations you talk about uncha. Is that how I pronounce it? Which is the shrub from Cape York? Uncha. Uncha, uncha. Can, can, you, can, can you just briefly tell us the story of that? of that product or that that plant well my first um interaction with that plant was just a young kid telling me how um i think it was about 11 12 and just told me how he had a toothache and wasn't able to get into town you know for a few days so he told me about how he he got the the root of that plant and dug it up and applied it to his tooth and it took the pain away and until he was able to get into town to go to the dentist to fix a cracked tooth. So, yeah, and then that particular plant was analysed by one of the elders of another clan group with the uh, University of South Australia, and they they discovered certain chemicals in there that they didn't even know about. So this was an added benefit to that. And I think the next step for them is to um, make a pharmaceutical medicine out of that. So looking forward, you know, what what do you, gosh, you know, with big decade that's just been, huge decade ahead, climate change, adaptation, decade of Indigenous languages, you know, as that quote we kicked off with, you know, every elder, and languages and our elders are, are, are precious and disappearing. What are you currently working on and personally most excited about? What, what projects are you currently working on? I, I think there's a wonderful project called a deadly solution combining traditional knowledge and Western science for an in- indigenous-led bush foods industry. Do you want to? Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. So that's um, so that was about getting indigenous people more involved. And, and you mentioned before about the bush tucker industry. Um, you know, it's worth 
millions of dollars every year. Yeah, not many Aboriginal people involved. So a lot of people have good ideas and they want to get started in that business, but they don't have the kickstart funding. So this is what our project is about, is providing that kickstart you know, just for communities to just get off the ground and start and then it can start to develop as it goes along and maybe require of more funding to be able to continue that project. That's um, pretty exciting for the communities. And and how many communities are you working with on that project? Is it is it about four or so? Four different areas? We've got so we've got three now. Mm-hmm. Um, two communities are actively um, working that project. But another one had you know things like Surrey business and so they're, they're a little bit behind. But hopefully they, you know they're going to catch up later. Yeah, yeah. And just reading about that project and something you sent through, it was really exciting because what you're focusing on, it's not bush foods from other parts of country, which would not trick that has tricky issues associated with it anyway, but you're focusing on potential food or ornamental or other business opportunities on country using plants that traditional owners have identified as unique to their country and that aren't currently commercialised. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, you know, for example, on our country, we have uh, root vegetables that's not been used. And so we, we're looking at that. So Mbarbong is one of the communities that's involved in the project. But also, you know, other botanicals such as yeah. um, dried flowers or perfumes or the skin cosmetics, things like that. So um, that's the added benefit mm. of the project in the sort of i think there's five big stages to that project and one of them is plant identification of plants and appropriate plant production systems you know because not every bush food likes to grow every year and bear fruit every year yes but i, I was really fascinated by plant identification and you talk about um uh you know helping communities identify plants that might have good potential in terms of propagation or horticultural production are there particular plant types that you know will propagate and ones that won't oh yeah so that obviously you know the, you get that in all areas where there's certain plants that will just take mm. anything and then others require a bit bit more um you know care so we're trying a variety of things so when you do it like in a like an orchard sense where it's monoculture i think that could create problems so we look looking at techniques like centropy which is bit like um what's the other term permaculture yeah it's mixed everything's mixed so you're kind of simulating it like a forest and you, everything grows together and if you're pruning you just drop everything down into the, the ground and that provides the, the mulch and yeah nutrients yeah. as well so we're, we're trialing that as well and as well as trialing food forest the native forest yeah. yeah yeah and the communities you're working with are they mainly in i mean obviously you're with the tropical indigenous mm. ethnobotanical center but are the communities you're working with are they tropical or temperate or mix what's up mostly communities funnily enough where savannah type countries a lot on the cape and uh, out west in a more desert country so uh, i think the word tropical came from the australian australian tropical herbarium so where it was situated who we sort of worked with yeah i spoke with um angela patterson from university of sydney who's involved with the native grains research project up at narrabri and you know with the Gamilaroi Plains country and they're doing a similar or they're, they're looking at native grains and their potential for production and they, and they quite explicitly are looking at them as industrial you know like farmed crops but then also in the landscape 
I like what you've just described, uh, and they call and they call that the pantry model, mm-hmm. that everything's there together, and you dip into it to 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 pick what you need. Uh-huh. Okay, so. The the, dead, the Deadly Solution Project is charging ahead and you've got Dale Chapman and all sorts of amazing people involved in that. Yeah. What else are you currently working on? I think you've recently put out a pretty amazing paper on the medicinal plant, on the Aboriginal medicinal plants of Queensland, which until now have, have been pretty, have been relatively understudied compared to other parts of Australia. Would you like to talk to me about that and work that you're doing in that health and medicinal plants space? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that um, that review was based on published material. So there were about 135 plants, all up, but there's a whole lot more in the database, which was provided by the traditional owners. And, and of course, I, I couldn't use that information without permission. Yeah, and that's a paper that um, is appears in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine, and it's all about Aboriginal medicinal plants of Queensland. Ethnopharmacological uses, species diversity and biodiscovery pathways. Yeah. And I was wondering when I read it, I thought, wow, there's a list, there's a biopiracy gift to the people who want to do the wrong thing. But actually, you that your article absolutely reinforces and tells the story of what the right way development for those for that further research and commercialization is and i just think that's really exciting how you brought that all together in that yeah in that paper and in that resource for queenslanders it's pretty amazing yeah that's right and so the, the benefit for the embarbarum community with that project is again recording the knowledge lots of knowledge that have gone missing so it's um, bringing back knowledge to the community knowledge about the plants itself Mm-hmm. reinvigorating those plant knowledge back in the community provides um, some employment for the uh, younger people as well and that the knowledge that's generated by the information that comes out of the lab you know that would help with the natural medicines which would assist tourism things like that i think there's something like twenty five thousand native species of plants in australia mm. more than a quarter used for food and over and your paper, the the medicinal plants paper, talks about there being over fifteen hundred plant species being used, having been used medicinally in Australia, but most from other states and territories. So really, shining the light on Queensland is really important, particularly because it's tropical and there'll be so much diversity and um, unique biota there, won't there? Yeah, that's right. I think the, there's very little recording of the tropics itself. A lot from the Cape, Western and Southern Queensland. So you know, it's, uh, it just provides more opportunity. You know, it's pretty much untouched. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you mind if I do give a share a quote from that paper? Because it's a little bit of a bricolage, but it's yeah. pretty beautiful. It says, um, you know, basically your paper puts out a call for, for more urgent research into these plants before the knowledge is lost. And, you know, in times of climate change, we need to protect everything that's so important. So here's a little quote from you. Aboriginal plant knowledge can be considered the oldest living pharmacopoeia with many plants still being consumed as bush food and bush medicine with Aboriginal communities, especially in remote areas. And few plants identified in this review can be found in other tropical countries, but many of these plants are native to Australia. Many of these native medicinal plants are rarely studied for their phytochemical and pharmacological properties and have huge potential for discovering novel drug lead compounds, as you've said. There is an urgent need to study the biota with these unexplored medicinal plants for developing novel plant-based drugs. However, it is vital that the biodiscovery project should benefit the Indigenous communities in Queensland fairly and equitably in accordance with the international and national biodiscovery bylaws and regulations. Bit of a mouthful, but a pretty good summary of what you're all about. You've already mentioned this amazing research you're doing on, um, on gut health, irritable bowel syndrome and so forth. Yeah. What, what are some of the other health benefits or 
or challenges or issues coming at us that you think this body of research that you're calling for into Aboriginal and medicinal plants might particularly address? I mean, as a tropical plant expert and uh, living in the tropics, are there some examples that really leap out at you or that you imagine might be on the horizon? I'm thinking of mosquito-borne diseases. I'm thinking of COVID, zoonotic. Well, those kind of virus-type diseases, they require special permission because they're viruses, you know, like COVID and that. But, you know, there's things like um, arthritis. Okay, more like natural healing. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are suffering seemingly no cure with things like that. Yeah. Um, so all the things that people are suffering from like like almost like life cycle chronic diseases yeah Yeah. (laughs) got a few of those myself and what about repellent type products i mean i know a lot of aboriginal remote communities have fantastic balms and uh things they they burn and to to keep insects and so forth away Mm. have you discovered some interesting things in that space natural repellent so from the the documenting that i've done there, there are repellents and things like that um but with the project, because it's kind of lab-based and funds are directed to particular activities in the lab, so while we think about all these things, is it requires further funding to be able to use the laboratory and facilities. Okay, so, so perhaps heading towards a bit of a wrap then and from that perspective of this great work you're doing working with traditional custodians on country for bush food and ornamental industry development and also around medicinal plant just you know giving yourself a pat on the back and looking back on where you've come from over the last 10 or 12 years and and then looking forward over the next decade or so what might be if I asked you what would be your one or two really big goal or vision in terms of IBK or more mainstream awareness and support for Indigenous land management practices what would be your one or two Big, hairy, audacious, but very achievable big goals or visions that you'd like to talk up? Um, the first thing would be to develop the tropical indigenous ethnobotany further with more personnel. More, more, more bodies on the ground, yep. Yeah, because there's a lot of work still to be done. One of the big dreams that I have was to bring a, an international conference to Australia. So it's the um, International Society of Ethnobiology. And they've never had a conference in Australia. So And yet we're one of the most plant diverse places on earth, yeah? Yes. And that would make a huge impact, I think, in, in the Cairns area with um, promoting indigenous biocultural knowledge. And also, you know, bring in other ethnobotanists and ethnobiologists that work in this space as well. A lot of them would love to come to Australia and learn about indigenous people of Australia. That, that sounds very achievable and doable in the UN decade of international languages. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fantastic? Oh, my goodness. I was also thinking about, you know, caring for country like the bushfires of 2019-20, absolutely devastating and, you know, will we ever recover? But one thing it certainly did was put cultural burning and Indigenous ways of caring for country and working with people together and knowing their species as you've said so you can do cultural burning the right way that 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 just wasn't on mainstream australia's radar 10 years ago and it's now front and foremost and who knows where we'll be in 10 years time with your great work so it's very exciting so you'd like an international conference here what about you jerry are you heading overseas to some international conferences in the next year or so um so just come back from one in jamaica (laughs) of course you have (laughs) Tell me about that. <laughs> but um, I'm also heading, oh, the maker was the International Society of Ethnobiology. So when, when I was in Brazil, I was approached by some of the directors there 
So that was an International Society of Ethnobiology conference as well. And I was approached by the directors mm -hmm. about coming to Australia. So we started working on it and then COVID hit and put everything to a stop. So they had their first conference in a, a few years yeah. in Jamaica. That's one of the reasons why I went over there to talk to the directors as well as you know, visit Jamaica itself. Yeah, and they're very keen again. And so we're applying for that with the help of the Eagle Ecological Society of Australia. Next stop cans for them. As well. But um, one other thing, major thing that I would like to happen, and it's a big possibility with the current government, is ratifying of the Nagoya Protocol. While it's been accepted by Australia, it hasn't been ratified by the, um, the previous government. And I think with a bit of a push with this current government, I think we have a, a good pos you know, prospect of having that ratified and, um, you know, making protection of Indigenous knowledge even more protected. And if the federal government ratifies it, yes. then the other states and territories have to move, don't they? Yes. So that's a great vision as well. Thank you for that, Jerry. Oh, my goodness. And um, agrobiodiversity, that's a hot topic in the food space. And obviously what, what you do is core to it. Have you got people from overseas tapping you on the shoulder to go off and talk about agrobiodiversity and food security and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, not, not so much in that. But I uh, do have connections you know, with people involved in that. and So you are heading overseas again. Where are you heading next? Oh, Edinburgh. Oh, Edinburgh. <laughs> Burrum, Burrum goes to Edinburgh. <laughs> and what are you doing there? What are you talking about? It's just about um, bringing Indigenous people together um, and talking about what they're doing in that ethnobotany space. Um, they've got the, the Scotland Museum. I don't know the correct name. The Museum of Scotland as well. Yeah, so it's about that in economic botany and... Like that. Yeah. Oh, that'll be fascinating. Gosh. Any other comments or uh, reflections perhaps that you'd like to share or share with our listeners? Well, we just had two days workshop, the staff, you know, retreat and just talking about aims and visions and of ATH. So, you know, and um, yeah, we talked a lot about just building up the TEC program, more personnel, because uh, the, there's a lot of work out there. And I, I hate to say no. <laughs> To the to communities. Oh well, hopefully you um through the through the environment through the uh, through the state of the environment. You and decade of Indigenous languages and uh, agrobiodiversity and food security issues. You know, there's so many dots to join to make the case to get mm. many more bodies on the ground to help you, Jerry. Because what you're doing is so so innovative and so exciting. So thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I've been speaking with Jerry Turpin, who is an Indigenous biocultural knowledge leader, innovator and doer, and he is the senior ethnobotanist at the Tropical Indigenous Ethnobotany Centre in Cairns. Thanks, Jerry. Good to catch up again. Okay, thank you. Good news since Jerry and I had our chat is the announcement that James Cook University will host a new Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Indigenous and Environmental Histories and Futures, and Jerry and his work will contribute to the new centre. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. 